Deuteronomy chapter 17. And in this passage of scripture, Moses is giving instruction to the people of God uh, concerning a number of things. Uh, He is instructing them concerning the proper forms of worship in the beginning of the chapter. He is instructing them concerning the, uh, the right use of the law, we might say, by way of the uh, responsibility uh, to civil government. But he is also uh, laying out in this passage of scripture the responsibility of the king to the nation. Now, what's interesting about this passage of scripture is there was no king in Israel at this time. And there would not be a king in Israel for another 400 years. But God in his foresight, God in his wisdom, God in his provision was laying out those requirements for a king in Israel. Those requirements, in one sense, that would make the kings of Israel to be very unique among the kings of the earth. And so in this passage of Scripture, we want to take a look at what is laid out here concerning God's instructions concerning those that he would choose to be kings in Israel. And we see this in verses 14 through 20 of Deuteronomy chapter 17. Please hear God's word. When thou art come unto the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee, and shall possess it, and shall dwell therein, and shall say, I will set a king over me like as the nations that are about me. Thou shalt in any wise set him king over thee, whom the Lord thy God shall choose, one from among thy brethren, Thou shalt set king over thee. Thou mayest not set a stranger over thee, which is not thy brother. But he shall not multiply horses to himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt, to the end that he should multiply horses. For as much as the Lord hath said unto you, ye shall not henceforth return no more that way. Neither shall he multiply wives to himself, that his heart turn not away. Neither shall he greatly multiply to himself silver and gold. And it shall be, when he sitteth upon the throne of his kingdom, that he shall write him a copy of the law and a book out of that which is before the priests and the Levites. And it shall be with him, and he shall read therein all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God, to keep all the words of of this law and these statutes to do them, that his heart be not lifted up above his brethren, and that he turn not aside from the commandment to the right hand or to the left." to the end that he may prolong his days in his kingdom, he and his children in the midst of Israel. Well, let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you once again this morning in in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And again, Father, we are very grateful and very blessed to know that you have promised to be among your people when they gather in the name of the Savior. And so, Father, here we are in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, desiring to give to you, Father, the honor and glory due your name desiring to know from you, Father, more about our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Very much, Father, desirous to have the ministry of your Spirit very much present among us this day. So grant these things we ask. Father, as we look in this passage of Scripture, which is primarily given for the instruction of kings, may we understand this passage of Scripture in such a way as to realize that there is a certain domain over which every one of us are kings or queens. And as kings or queens over our domain, Father, give us grace, we pray, to enter into that domain with the same attitude toward the word of God and the same responsibility toward the word of God that you gave to the kings of old. Grant these things, we pray, Father, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we've seen in this passage of Scripture, this passage of Scripture is written for the kings of Israel. And uh, as much as I appreciate being here with you, I don't think I'm in the presence of royalty this morning from one perspective. 
But we know that from the word of God, we are informed that God has made us a kingdom of priests and kings unto our God, has he not? And what I want to do this morning with this passage of scripture is I want to use this passage of scripture as a means by which to enable us to interact with the word of God in a particular way. And what I want to do is I want, to, I want you to ask yourself the question, what is your approach to the word of God? What is your attitude toward the word of God? Now, again, our attitude toward the word of God is vitally important. There's no two ways about it. As a matter of fact, if we would look in the scriptures concerning the word of God, you will see that your very, your very faith in one sense is reflected by way of your attitude toward the word of God. And there in John chapter 8, uh, verses 30 and 31, there was a, that time at the end of the chapter, or excuse me, in the middle of the chapter, where there were many people who were starting to believe in Jesus. And they were coming to Jesus. And one of the things that he says to them is this. He says, if you continue in my word, then you are my disciples indeed. So there's a very real sense in which your relationship to the word of God, your response to the word of God is indicative of the reality of your faith. And there's another sense in which we we see the Lord Jesus Christ uh, uh, explaining how that our love for him is kind of measured out by how we respond to his word. He says in John chapter 14, if you love me, keep my commandments. And so again, your attitude toward the word of God is vitally important. And because of that, I want to use this passage of scripture to help us kind of enter into what the word of God should mean in the life of an individual believer. Now, granted, I am drawing parallels from what is primarily intended for the Old Testament kings of Israel, but I think that there are legitimate parallels that we can draw, and hopefully you will benefit by this. But as I said before, I am aware that I'm not in the presence of royalty. You're not in the presence of royalty other than the fact that we are in the presence of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And when we look around and we look among the people of God, we find what the Apostle Paul has said is very true, isn't it? Look out among yourselves, brother, not many wise after the flesh, not many mighty after the flesh, but God has chosen the foolish things of this world to confound the wise, the weak things to confound the mighty. And so there is a sense in which we identify as the people of God, maybe low in the eyes of the world, but very precious in the eyes of God. And so what we see, even though that is our station and standing in this life, we still have to understand, as I said earlier, that there is a sense in which every one of us exercises a certain domain over our dominion, our sphere of dominion, we might say. Now, no matter how busy your life is, no matter how much you have by way of responsibility to others, God has ordained and God has granted that you have a certain ability to make use of time in any way that you see fit. There is a certain domain within your life where you rule over that domain where there is no one who is pressing upon you by way of responsibility or by way of expectation. And in that regard, you are free in those moments. Listen to what, um, what one writer has to say along these lines. He says this, In respect to the secret impulses, oh, I'm sorry, uh, he first says this, From the domain of our spiritual lives to the domain of our physical and emotional life, we indeed rule over a kingdom. He goes on, In respect to secret impulses, which impart direction and force to life, every man is kingly. A certain self-contained lordliness belongs to man as such, apart altogether from the position he may happen to hold among his fellows. Although his action externally is always liable to be checked by some superior power, every man is a king in the castle of his own heart. He goes on. 
There, though under the law of God, he is free from inspection and control of his brother. In other words, what this man is saying is what the point that I'm trying to make is that you and I, in a certain respect, have this dominion over our lives under the lordship of Jesus Christ. But in that dominion, what I want to convey to you this morning is to come to the word of God with the same accountability, the same responsibility that God gave to the Old Testament kings. And in this regard, I think there are a number of things that we can see from this passage of Scripture. And they were laid out for us, as I said before, in verses, in chapter 17, verses, particularly verses uh, 18 through 20. But what I want to do is I want to just kind of get into the text and deal with, with, deal with the text for just a few moments here. One of the things that we see in this passage of Scripture, as I said before, is that God is giving through Moses instructions for the establishment of a king. Now, it was very somewhat unusual that there should be directions given for a king at this time. As I said before, it would not be another 400 years until there would be a king in Israel. But there would come a time, God saw, that the people would want a king for themselves. And what God had instructed were a number of things as to what would qualify a man to be a king. Number one, he had to be of the Hebrew nation. He had to be a descendant of Abraham. He had to be that one which was taken from among his brothers, is what, Mo, is what the, the Lord says through Moses. And there are a number of prohibitions that we see that were given to him. And these prohibitions really kind of had to do with his personal life, his public life, and his military life. That's why we see in these, uh, in, in these, in these verses here, uh, in, in these verses here, particularly in verse uh, 17, he, uh, I'm sorry, in verse, um, in verse uh, 16 and, and, and following, he says this, But he shall not multiply horses to himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt, for the end that, for the end that he should multiply horses. For as much as the Lord had said unto you, ye shall henceforth return that way no more. Neither shall he multiply wives to himself, that his heart turn not away. Neither shall he multiply greatly to himself silver and gold. Did you notice that? Neither, neither, neither. In other words, there were clear prohibitions that the king was under. And these prohibitions are interesting in at least two ways. Number one, these prohibitions would in a very real way make the kings of Israel unique among the kings of the earth. In other words, these kings of Israel were not to engage in the things that earthly kings would do to extend and keep their power. It sounds somewhat strange to us in our day, but horses, multiple wives, and silver and gold, what does that all relate to? Well, in the ancient world, those three things were the very things that were used to secure and to extend the dynasty. Of course, horses would have reference to military might and power. And the idea that God was trying to get across to the king was essentially this. All of your might and all of your power, all your strength and all of your protection is not in the arm of flesh, nor is it in the strength of horses. Your protection, your might and your well-being is bound up in your reliance upon me, God would be saying. By way of multiple wives, we thank God that we live in an age where we have the blessing of monogamy and not, we would say, the hardship of polygamy. We thank God for that. But in the ancient world, what polygamy would enable a king to do, it would enable him to build his family line. And that there would be multiple sons from which he could choose to, to have uh, succeed him to the, uh, to, to the throne. But again, Israel was not to be this way. Their dependence was to be upon God himself. And we even saw, was it, was it last week or the week before last, uh, by way of the reign of that wicked woman, Athaliah, 
There was that one singular son that was reserved to be the king in Israel. All of the others were wiped out. You see, human ingenuity fails in order to do the plan and the will of God. And so God is saying to those who would be king in Israel, you must do it my way. You must depend upon me. Human means must not be your chief end by which you depend. And of course, the accumulation of silver and gold. Let me ask you this. What would a nation state be without a healthy economy? And so all these things are set in contrast to what the kings of Israel were to be as opposed or in in, in comparison to the kings of the world. There's also a sense in which because God puts this in the form of neither, 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 you shall not, these prohibitions, there is a sense also by way of God doing that, that the king himself was to be a model of what it was to be subject to a superior law. We also see in the, in, 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 the, uh, in the word of God by way of the instructions of the kings that the kings could not by way of their own virtue make their own law. They had, to be, they, had to, uh, they had to be executors of the law of God. It was not for the kings of Israel to make new laws. It was the law of God given through Moses that they were to be faithful to. And that's what they were to do in their executive functions. And so what we see here, as I said before, we see a very... A very, a very clear picture being set out of those who would be kings within the domain of God. Those who would be kings and queens under the lordship of Jesus Christ. You see, there are these prohibitions that you and I are under. You see how we can make these parallels, how we can make these connections. You have a kingdom. It may not be much in the eyes of the world, but it's a kingdom for which you must give an account to God for. And in that kingdom, there are prohibitions that you and I must live under. We must live in there in such a way that we show to ourselves, to our loved ones, to a watching world, that our dependency is upon God himself. We know that there are human means for doing things, human ways of doing things, uh, a human insight into certain things. But by the grace of God, we take our stand on the word of God and we say, Father, do your will, have your way, and bless those ways, we pray. And so the king himself was to be this one who lived as an example of the individual living under the lordship of God himself. And so again, we see these these prohibitions. But this is not the only thing uh, that we see. And again, I I really don't want to spend uh, much time on these prohibitions that we see because primarily what I want to do is I want to take a look at the idea of what the king was supposed to do in regard to the word of God. And this is really where I want to make my, 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 my exposition and my application at this point. Because I am convinced, as I said before, we all stand in a certain relationship to the word of God. And I think that what we see here by way of how the kings were to react to the word of God, I think there's a sense in which we can draw true parallels. And what we see by way of the command that God is giving to the kings is that these commands really fall out among a number of ways. Number one, what we're going to see is that there was a direct relationship of the king to the word of God. We're also going to see that there was to be a direct impact of that relationship in the life of the king. And, under, and in that impact that it was to have on the life of the king, the life of the king was to be impacted in his relationship to God and his relationship to his fellow man. And that's what life is all about, isn't it? When it's all said and done, it's our, it's our relationship before God and our relationship to our fellow man. And so as I said before, we can look at this passage of Scripture in one sense from a strictly historical point of view and say, oh, isn't it interesting that this is what the kings of Israel were to do? But if we do that, we're not making full use of the Scripture. 
We've read today that all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, for correction and righteousness, that the man of God might be thoroughly furnished unto every good work. You see the word of God profitable in all of its, in all of its content. And so again, we, not, we want not only to know what the word of God may have to say historically to a particular situation and about certain kings in the Old Testament, we want to know what the word of God has to say to us. And the point of parallel that I'm using to draw that with is that very little idea that you and I are kings and queens of a certain sort. Now, we don't walk around dressed in royalty. When we go outside and we go to work, the, our fellow workers don't bow down to us. And sometimes they do quite the opposite. We know that, we understand that. But you know what I'm trying to say? There is a kingdom for which we are responsible before God. Husbands and fathers, we have great responsibility here, don't we? We're to lead our families, be guides to our wives, be instructors to our children. All these things you see, we have this little kingdom, these little kingdoms that we are responsible for. And I would say to you that if we would take up the word of God in our lives and in our houses, the way that the kings of Israel were to take up the word of God, I think not only will we be better for it, but we'll see, we'll see by the end of the sermon, not only will we be better for it, but our families will be better for it, and our nation will be better for it as well. So let's go on and take a look here, what we see here. Number one, what I want you to see here is primarily the king's relationship with the word of God or to, towards the word of God. And we see this uh, particularly uh, starting in verse 18. And notice, and notice what we see here. And it shall be when he sitteth upon the throne of his kingdom that he shall write him a copy of this law in the book out of that which is before the priests and the Levites. And it shall be with him, and he shall read therein all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God, and to keep all the words of this law, and these statutes to do them. Now what I want you to see here, is there are three primary responsibilities that the king has toward the word of God. Number one, he is to write it. Number two, he is to read it. And number three, he is to do it, or to obey it. He is to read, he is to write it, he is to read it, and he is to obey it. These three things comprise the responsibility that the king had toward the word of God. And I'm going to take a look at each one of these things. And the first thing that I want you to notice here with me is that something may be unusual for us to see, but I do want to spend a little time with it. And it's this, that the king had a responsibility to take and to write the word of God. Now, this is a very interesting thing, isn't it? I mean, we would almost naturally, suggest, almost naturally expect the idea of reading it, but the king was under, under, was under authority to God to take a copy of the scriptures, an authoritative copy of the scriptures, we'll get to that shortly, and to write the scripture with his own hand. Now, some commentators get into the question as to whether or not, uh, when he wrote this, whether or not this was something with his own hand, or whether he was to, uh, or whether he was to commission somebody to do it. I have a tendency to believe that, at least in the intention of the Word of God, that he was to write it. And there is a sense in which when we stop and think about all that that would mean, the first thing we, th we would think about is this, what a time-consuming task that would be. And yes, while it, may while it may consume much time, what a character-changing task it would be. What would it be if you and I would take the Word of God and not only read it, begin but to begin to write it? To write it out, and I'm telling you right now, when you write out the Word of God, you, you will begin to pick things up that you would miss just by reading it. 
You will see little things in there. And matter of fact, in, in writing out this section of scripture this, this, this morning, I saw things in the, in the text itself that I didn't see in writing it. The personal accountability over and over. He shall do this. He shall do that. He shall do this. And so what you see here is this great blessing that there is in writing out the word of God. And this was the responsibility of the king. I often think of, again, not only how beneficial it would be and what a blessing, what a source of blessing it would be to actually write out the word of God. I really think that it would be a wonderful way in which to, in which to convey a blessing to those who are near and dear to us. What would it mean if, if, if your children one day gave to you a handwritten copy of their favorite, their favorite portion of scripture? What would it mean if your aged parent one day placed in your hand a copy of the scripture or a portion of scripture that they had written out of all those passages that they were praying for you over the years? You know those passages. You know the passages we pray for our children, don't you? Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he's old, he'll not depart from it. What would it be on your last days to give that handwritten copy of the Scripture and all the other promises that pertain to our children and put it in your your child's hand and say, these are the passages of Scriptures that I went to God in prayer for you with? It'd be wonderful, wouldn't it? And so again, we think of of the blessing that this would be. And so, yes, it would be a, a time-consuming task. And, and yes, it would be, a, a, but, but it would also be, as I said before, it would be a character-changing task. You know, we know how much benefit we have from reading the Word of God, from meditating on the Word of God. But to take the Word of God and to write it again, I think it would be a wonderful blessing uh, to the people of God. Now, again, in order to do this, if you were interested in such a thing, you would certainly have to set aside a certain portion of the day. And I think that there's something by which in God God instructing the kings to do this, I think there was something purposeful in that. I think God wants a designated time in our day to be given over to him. I really do. And as I was speaking earlier about this idea that we are these kings and queens over these small domains of ours, one of the places in which we have the most freedom are those first moments in the day and those last moments in the day. Those first moments in the day where there's nobody crashing in upon us, requiring our attention. Those first moments of the day where where maybe all is silent in the house. Those those first moments in the day where the mind is clearest. You see, that is the realm of your kingdom right there. And what are you doing with that time? You know what the tendency is on our day, don't you? It's a, to turn on the news or to, to look online and to see what happened overnight or to check the phone for messages. Well, what about the first moments in the day, giving them over to the worship of God, giving them over to some meditation of some portion of Scripture, giving itself over to the reading of the Word of God? You see, again, that domain that we have and the exercise that we have in that domain, oh, that we would engage that in the way that the Old Testament kings were to engage uh, the day and, the, and, the, and to engage their responsibilities. And so we need to give ourselves over to a particular amount of time in order to do this. But what, as I said before, though it may be time-consuming, it will be character-transforming. And because of that, in and of itself, It should incite us to at least begin to think through, how would I write out the word of God? Would I start with Genesis 1 and end up in in Revelation 22? Would I take maybe just particular passages of scripture that I want to carry with me throughout the day? But the value of writing the word of God should not be overlooked. The value of writing the word of God and having it cemented within our thinking should in no way be overlooked. And it was a responsibility 
of these ancient kings in Israel. What an interesting, what an interesting uh, uh, responsibility that is, isn't it? He shall take a copy of this book and he shall write it. The other thing that we see here is this, is, and I think this is very uh, significant, is that the copy of the book that he was to take, notice here again in verse, uh, in verse 18, and when he sitteth upon the throne of his kingdom, he shall write him a copy of this law in a book out of that which is before the priest and the Levites. And I think there's some significance in this because I think what we're seeing here is that Moses is saying to the king, look, you are to use an authoritative copy of the word of God. God was not so much interested in having the king write what he thought should be in the book of God. God was interested in making sure that the kings knew what God himself expected of them. It wasn't a paraphrase, so to speak. It wasn't the word of God put in his own language. It was to be an authoritative copy of the word of God that he was to take in the right and so what we see happening here, again, is this idea of the preciousness and the value and the specifics, the specificality of the Word of God. There is a Word of God in our world today, and it's found in this holy book. And though there may be many voices that say they are speaking for God, there is only one voice of God in the world today, and that's the Spirit of God speaking through the Word of God. And that's why when we come to the place of worship, what do we desire to hear? It's not stories. Stories may illustrate, fair enough. But we come to hear an exposition of God's word, do we not? We want to have the Lord Jesus Christ speaking to us through the word. And so again, this idea of an authoritative word is so vitally important to us. And he was to write everything that was in it. Now again, in Moses' day, in the day of the kings, it would have been certainly the first five books of uh, Moses, the first five books of the Bible. But the idea that I want you to see here is this. It was to be, at least for at that time, it was to be the whole counsel of God. It wasn't to be just particular passages that he liked. It wasn't to be his, fav- it wasn't to be his favorite passages. And you know those ones that speak against my, my particular action or my particular self, I'll just leave those ones out. That's what, that wasn't to be the, 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 the responsibility that he had. It was to be the whole counsel of God applied to himself. And you know what the Apostle Paul says there in Acts chapter 20, 27. Again, for I have not shunned to declare unto you the whole counsel of God, all the counsel of God. And so what we see here is that the king had this responsibility to the totality of the word of God. The whole word of God applied to the whole of life. That's a prescription for blessedness, my brothers and sisters. The whole word of God applied to the whole of life. And so again, we see that this was the responsibility of the king by way of him having to write uh, the scriptures uh, for himself. The second thing that we see is this. Not only shall he write it, but obviously he shall read it. And notice what it says here. Not only shall he read it periodically, look look at what we see here in verse 19. And it shall be with him, and he shall read therein all the days of his life. He shall read therein all the days of his life. There's significance here as well. This passage of scripture forces us to this next question. Well, how often do we read the Word of God? Is the Word of God our Sunday book? Well, I hope it's at least that. But it's got to be more than that. It's got to be our daily book. He's to take the Word of God daily and read it. He's to read it every day. You know that God has, just by way of design and purpose, has ordained that this precious book of His is not to be understood in one, it's not to be understood completely in one reading. You can't read and understand, you can't understand the whole Bible just by reading it through one time. 
It's not that kind of a book. It's not a novel. It's not a storybook. It's not a fairy tale, in spite of what unbelievers say. And that's your testimony to the word of God in a fallen world. That God has spoken, and by his grace, I will be obedient to it. Just like the kings of old, seeing, seeing all these nations around them, horses, wise, and gold. And the king, the godly kings, what were they doing? They were depending upon God himself. And so again, he was to take the word of God up daily and read it. As I said before, you know, when you read uh, as some of our old favorite preachers, they, th- they say things like this. They say it in a lot more picturesque way than, than, than what we can say. You know, they say that, that the word of God is, is like a gold mine that you can't exhaust with one shovel. One shovel is one reading of the scripture. You have to go there and, 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 and dig and dig and dig. And there are much riches in the word of God. And so again, what we see is that the king's responsibility to the word of God was not only to write it, it was to read it and to read it every day. But I like something else uh, in, this, in this 19th verse that I think is very, uh, very helpful for, to, for us here. And that's again at the beginning of verse 19. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, and it shall be with him. In other words, it shall be his own personal copy of the scriptures. It was his Bible. Do you have those kind of Bibles that are your Bibles. You may have a lot of Bibles laying around your house. But do you have that one Bible that's your Bible? That Bible that you've cried into? That Bible that you've prayed into? That Bible that you've poured over? That's your Bible. Do you have that kind of a Bible? And that's what the Word of God was to be to the kings in that day. It was to be his own personal possession. It was to be near and dear to him. Wherever he went, the the Word of God was to be with him. Certainly, if not physically, at least within his mind and heart. And so what we see here again is the king's responsibility to the word of God. And again, I ask the question, my fellow kings and my fellow queens, what is your responsibility? How are you handling the word of God? Is it near and dear to you? Is it precious? Is it yours? Is it the word of God spoken to you? Is it, is, is, is it, again, is it that, that voice from heaven that God is revealing himself to you with? And so again, we see that he shall read it. Now again, as I said before, it's to be read all the days of his life. One man says this, its treasures cannot be unearthed in one shovel. It must be constantly mined to extract its precious ore. It is to be read continually and repeatedly. It is a well that never runs dry, that will refresh and strengthen every time that we take it up in faith. Every time we take it up in faith. Do you know how important the mixture of faith with the word of God is? Do you know that there are times when we sit under the preaching of the word of God or sit reading the word of God where the word of God sadly does not profit us? It's not because there's a failure in the word of God. The word of God is objectively the word of God. It does not subjectively become the word of God when you happen to believe it in a certain It is the word of God. But oh, the precious mixture of the word of God and a believing heart. That's where we see the difference in many times between salvation and even damnation. Listen to what Hebrews chapter 4 verse 2 says, For unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them, but the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. You know, when we come to hear the word of God, one of the things that we need to pray is that God would prepare our hearts that God would place faith, stir up faith within us. We want to sit under the preaching of the word of God, not as some great skeptic. We want to sit under the preaching of the word of God as that one who is ready to hear and believe all that God has in his word. 
And so again, the word of God mixed with faith, what a great and powerful thing that is. And so again, he was to read it. It was to be his personal possession. Now, the interesting thing about this, as I said before, he was to read it every day. And what's interesting is that in the life of Old Testament Israel, the word of God, again, had a central, uh, had a central place. That the word of God had to be read by the king every day. But the word of God also had to be publicly read once every seven years. We find this in Deuteronomy chapter uh, 31, verses 9 through 13. And this and this. And Moses wrote this law. Oh, and by the way, when Moses wrote this law, that was the authoritative source that the, that, that the king's writing was from, supposed to be from. It was from the law that Moses wrote down. Again, verse 9. And Moses wrote this law and delivered it to the priests, the sons of Levi, which bear the ark of the covenant of the Lord unto, unto all the elders of Israel. And Moses commanded them, saying, At the end of every seven years, in the solemnity of the year of release, in the Feast of Tabernacles, when all of Israel has come to appear before the Lord God in thy place, which he shall choose, thou shalt read this law before all Israel in their hearing. What do we see again? That the word of God was to be publicly read. The word of God was to be personally read. The word of God was to be, again, the, the sum and substance of the life of the nation. How much more in the life of the king. And so here you are, hearing the word of God proclaimed, hearing the word of God read in its portions, sitting under the word of God, hopefully having the word of God being mixed with faith. So he was to write it. He was to read it. But of course, we know as well, he was to obey it. And again, in one sense, just like the vitality of faith being mixed with the word of God brings about, brings about those blessed effects in the life, so obedience is that very thing as well that brings about the blessed effects of the word of God in our lives. We know over and over again in the scripture we are warned against a mere hearing of the word and not an obeying. Do you know the passage of scripture taken from James? Be ye, be ye not hearers of the word only, but doers of the word. We must be doing the word of God. And that's what the king was to do. As I said before, the king was to be a model of a life lived in submission to the lordship of God himself. How many passages do we see in the Old Testament where God declares himself to be king? Listen to these passages as I just go over them. I'm sure uh, many of them you'll, you, 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 uh, will, will sound familiar to you. Uh, passages uh, such as uh, Psalm 10 verse 16. For the Lord is king forever and ever. Isaiah 32, 33, 22, for the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king. Look, every function of state, so to speak, was bound up in God himself. Did you notice that? The Lord is our judge. There's justice. The Lord is our lawgiver. Again, there's the law. The Lord is our king. And all these things we see all revolve on the being of God himself. Jeremiah 10, 10, but the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and an everlasting king. And so what we see here is that the king, as I said before, was to live as one under the authority of a king. He was to model for the nation what it was to be an obedient citizen within the kingdom of God. Do you know that you and I are to model for a nation what it is to live under the lordship of Jesus Christ? I've often thought in regard to the great need of our nation by way of national repentance is it even right for us to speak about national repentance until we speak about repentance in our own hearts and repentance in the church? Could it be that the world knows nothing about repentance because they never see it modeled by the people of God? And would it be that the world would understand something better of repentance if they saw repentance in our hearts and our lives? And so again, the king was to be a model for the nation 
The church is to be a model for the nation as to what it is to live under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And so again, he shall obey it. And again, so many passages, uh, again, you know, speak to our, uh, speak to our, come to our attention at this point. Passages like Mark 3.35, whosoever shall do the will of God, the same as my brother and sister. Of course, the passage from James 1.22, be ye doers of the word. Luke chapter 6, verse 46, and why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things that I say? Why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things that I say? Other passages of scripture, I think, again, the the passage of the parable in Mark 4 or Luke 8, the same parable, the parable of the sower. And these have no root in themselves and so endure but for a time. And afterward, when affliction or persecution arises for the word's sake, immediately they are offended. You know that the reality of your faith is seen in your obedience to the word of God, even under pressure. Now, again, we, we have to be very, very careful here. In a sense, if I could put it this way, we, we have to be as compassionate to one another and compassionate maybe to our own failings and the failings of others at this point. We know what it's like to stand, try to stand up under pressure, and sometimes we don't stand successfully under pressure, do we? Sometimes we find ourselves on the, on the embarrassing end of the stick, I might say. Oh, where was my boldness then? You know, where was my stand for Christ then? But you have to see and understand that I hope and pray that when that, if and when that happens, where our consciences are, are, are smitten by it, because there is a sense in which our faithfulness to the word of God in times of opposition is the mark of true faith. That parable of the sowers. It's all about what true faith is. True faith isn't just hearing the word of God, getting all excited about it for a short amount of time, and then leaving it off because of the cares of this world, or because of the persecution of the, that the world faith, uh, uh, brings our way. True faith is that which abides and sticks to the word of God. The word of God gets in us and the word of God develops in us as well. And so again, we see here that he was to obey. He was to, he was to write, he was to read, and he was to obey. Now what's interesting is we further develop this idea, and particularly along this last point, the idea of obeying. What we're going to find is that that obedience t- takes, takes its direction, in, or it takes place in a twofold direction. I spoke about this earlier. And the direction that the word of God leads us to by way of obedience is twofold. It's our duty toward God and it's our duty toward man. Our responsibility to to God and our interaction with man. And we see this in the passage of scripture. Again, these aren't things that we're just developing by way of implication. It's very clear in the text. Notice what we see here. At the end of verse 19, to keep all, all the words of this law and these statutes to do them. Now notice this. That his heart be not lifted up above his brethren. That he turn not aside to the right and to the left. And that the end, that he may prolong his days, his kingdom, he, his children in the midst of Israel. And again, go back to verse 19. That's where I should have started. I apologize. Verse 19. And it shall be with him all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God to keep all the words of this law and these statutes to do them. So there's his responsibility to God. Verse 20 is his responsibility to man. That his heart be not lifted up above his brethren. Let's take a look at each of these now. Number one, the primary effect of the word of God in the life of the individual is that reverential fear and awe of God Almighty. That reverential fear and awe of God Almighty. It's a sad thing when in the church of Jesus Christ there is no longer reverence and awe for God Himself. 
It's a sad thing when in the church of Jesus Christ, the irreverence that's in the world begins to creep into the to, to irreverence within the church. The whole aim of the word of God in the life of the king was to teach him to fear God. Now again, I think many of us have been Christians long enough to know when it comes to this concept of the fear of God, we have to make sure that we define it properly. This fear of God is not an irrational dread. It's not what many would call today a phobia. That's not what this fear of God is. But you know what the fear of God is. The fear of God is that reverential trust that the individual has for God. It's that sense of being in the presence of the awesome God creator of the universe who in his love sent forth his son to die for our sins. This is an amazing reality about the nature of God. And oh, that every time that we took up the word of God, an increase, for, for an increase within us for the awe for God would, would, would develop. This sense that we would not be without the fear of God. And again, if we were to try to further define the fear of God, I think one of the easiest ways that we can, can define it isn't so much by way of a formal definition, but just by way of a simple comparison. That the fear of God is opposite that of the irreverence for God that we see in the world today. God is not the butt of a joke. Jesus isn't a punchline. You understand? And the effect of the word of God in the life of the king was to be the development of this awe and of this reverence for God himself. But the second thing that we see is this. Not only was it to develop this fear of God, notice what it says here again in verse 19, and to keep all the words of this law and these statutes to do them, to keep the law and to do them. Now I ask you the question, think with me here, is there any difference between keeping the law and doing the, and doing the statutes of the law? Well, probably when it's all said and done, we wouldn't want to make too much of a distinction here. To keep the law is to do the law, but I would suggest something to you here that I think that to keep the law in one sense is to have the word of God, if I can use this picture, the word of God in reservoir. The word of God contained. The word of God in a, in a treasure chest, so to speak. The word of God in that, back, in, in that backpack. The word of God available whenever it's needed in order to do it. You understand? So to keep the word of God is to have it at the ready. To obey the word of God is to bring it to bear in your life situation. And part of the reason why we don't do the word of God is because we don't have enough of the word kept within us. That goes back to writing the word of God. That goes back to reading the word of God. You see, there is a real connection here between the effects of the word of God. As I said before, to write the word of God, time consuming, but character changing. And so when we see here that the, that, the, that, the, that, the, that, the, that the effect of the word of God in the life of the king was first God word, the development of this reverential awe, this trust, this, this respect, and this, and this awesomeness for, 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 for realizing who and what God is. And wouldn't it be wonderful if all of our times of worship were marked by that? And this is one of the, these are one of the elements that should be part of our worship. This idea of reverence and awe. The idea of joy in the fact of our redemption through Jesus Christ. All these things. The idea of worship according to his word. And so again, the effect of the word of God in the life of the individual king. The effect was again reverence to keep the word of God. To have it at the ready. Oh, do you have the word of God at the ready? Do you have the word of God ready to go? And so again, this subtle difference between keeping and doing 
But not only do we have the king by way of his responsibility before God in this passage of scripture, we also have the king by way of his responsibility toward his fellow man. And there's something very, 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 there's something touching. That might not be the right word, but there's something appealing here by way of these words being spoken to a king. As I said before, this is what would make the kings of Israel unique among the kings of, of the world of that day. That the king himself was a man of flesh and blood. That the king himself was no more or no less than an individual made in the image of God. And because made in the image of God, he was no better nor no less than his fellow man. What a wonderful thing for a king to be possessed with. That there is this true equality among men and women. That there is this true equality among humanity. All based not on some kind of concocted idea of what, excuse me, of what we might think, but based on the reality that every human being that you see is made in the image of God. And yes, while human beings may do very despicable things, they are not despicable beings because they are made in the image of God. And while they may do things that come under the wrath of God, still bearing the image of God, they are worthy of all dignity and respect. You see what the word, how the word of God elevates our understanding of our fellow man, how it elevates our... And even you on your worst days, you know how those days... When you're, when, you're, when you're casting yourself down and you, and you hate yourself for this and you hate yourself for that, you're still made in the image of God. And I'm, referring, and I'm speaking to a congregation of Christians. You are redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ as well. And so again, <clears throat> the effect of the word of God. <clears throat> excuse me here for a minute. <clears throat> so we see the effect of the word of God. Not only on our not only on our responsibility before God, but also on our responsibility to our fellow man, that he should not lift himself up again. But you know what? There's another reason. There's another biblical reason why there is this essential equality between the king and his subjects. Again, all made in the image of God. Wonderful, beautiful. Again, then let me say this: is this is just an aside. There is something about being made in the image of God where you do not have to look down upon another man or another person's success or another person's natural gifts. You can rejoice in the fact that being made in the image of God, God in a certain way, in a particular way, has blessed individuals in this way or that way. You can rejoice in all that that God gives to humanity, but still understanding there is this essential image of God that we bear, this essential equality among men. But there's another basis for the king not seeing himself here in verse in Deuteronomy chapter 17 verse 20 for his heart being not lifted up above his brethren. There's another reason for that. Not only because we are all made in the image of God, but also because we have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. That's another reason for our common humanity and understanding that we are no better and our brother or our sister, we are no better than our neighbor because each and every one of us has sinned and come short of the glory of God. And in this concept of all persons finding that equality in the fact not only that they are made in the image of God, but all persons are also sinners, this is where the church of Jesus Christ has that wonderful opportunity to present the gospel of Jesus Christ. To every person that they come in contact with, this one thing they know, 
That person needs the gospel of Jesus Christ because that person, just like this person, has sinned and offended a holy God. But that person, just like this person, can hear the gospel and can receive the gospel and can be made a true son or daughter of God through faith in Jesus Christ. You see the commonness of our humanity, not common in the sense of not spectacular, but the commonness in that which we share together. And so that was to be the effect of the reading of the word of God on the king. Let me ask you this. Is that the effect of reading the word of God on you? Do you see yourself as one of a common mass of humanity? Not in some kind of an indistinguishable way because we are distinguished by our personalities. But in such a way as to where we understand we're no better than anybody else. And if it were not for the grace of God, where would we be? And not only that, because of what we know we are as sinners. We know what we could be. We're, we, we know more about what we could be than our neighbors may know. Sometimes, sometimes our neighbors get a pretty good idea of what we could be apart from the grace of God. <clears throat> but I think you understand the point that I'm trying to make here. That there is this effect that the word of God is to have upon the soul of the king. That he understands that he is, again, not, that his heart be not lifted up above his brethren. Wonderful, isn't it? And to think that kings should live this way. Again, you and I, kings and queens in our domains, this is the way that we should live. But notice again what we see here in verse 20, that he should not be lifted up above his brethren and that he turn not aside from the commandment to the right or to the left. This is the other, this is the other thing that the word, impact that the word of God is to have on us. That the word of God is to give us, we might say, that single eye for heaven. That the word of God is to be that compass whereby we set our sails to eternity. And we have this expression not to turn to the left or to the right, and a man or a woman may turn to the left or right and meet success in this world. But you will not meet God in heaven should you turn to the left or right. You understand? This word that God has given to us sets the compass for ourselves. And may we, by God's grace, not turn to the left or to the right, but may we sail straight toward eternity in the arms of our dear Savior. So again, should he, not, he should not lift himself above his fellow man. He should not turn to the right or left. Now notice this. To the end that he may prolong his days in his kingdom, he and his children in the midst of Israel. I want you to notice a number of things here. Number one, I want you to notice the blessing that the word of God brings, that he may prolong his days. You remember what the, what the Bible, what Paul says in the New Testament about the, uh, about the fifth commandment, honor thy father and mother. The first commandment of promise, that thy days may be long upon the earth. Can I say it? Life is a blessing. And I know that old age has its challenges, but life is a blessing. And you need to remind yourself of that. You need to be thankful for that. As difficult as life may be at times, life as life is the blessing of God. And so again, this, this, this word of God taken into the soul of the king would be a blessing to him. But notice what we see here. To the end that he may prolong his days in his kingdom, he and his children in the midst of Israel. This king, this man, you as kings, you as queens, should you live according to the rule in the, in, the, in the word of God, you will be a blessing to yourself. You will be a blessing to your children. And you will be a blessing to your nation. Did you see it here in the text? Look again. To the end that he may prolong his days in his kingdom. He, there's his blessing. His children, there's their blessing. In the midst of Israel, there's the nation's blessing. We don't say it with any degree of arrogance. But the church of Jesus Christ is a positive blessing in whatever nation it is found. 
The Church of Jesus Christ is a positive blessing in this state of Massachusetts. In this nation, it's a positive blessing. Because of who we are and what we are, no. But because of the blessing of God upon the people of God, because of the effects of the Word of God within the people of God. You look at everything that we just said by way of what the Word of God is to do in our accountability before God and our, resp- and, and our, and our, accountability, our responsibility to our fellow man. It would, not that, would not that make for a blessing in the land? Of course it would. That a people would be reverent. That a people would not have this arrogance of puffing, one, uh, uh, puffing uh, uh, ourselves up one against another. That we would seek to do good to those that we come in contact with. And that we would not only be those ones who do good in our own generation, but we would set the stage for the generations to come. Isn't this one of the things that you are thankful for for the church of Jesus Christ? That it is that ongoing work of God within human history that human history has been impacted by the gospel of Jesus Christ, that you and I are impacting not only this generation, but the generation to come. This is why we pray for our children, is it not? This is why we seek to have young ones follow in the ways of God. This is why we try to make the word of God as clear as we can. Why? Because, no, because not because of us, but because of the very blessing and ordination of God. This land, your house, your family, your home, your heart can be blessed when you and I live as kings and queens within our own little domain, taking the word of God as that rule by which God has called us to live. Well, there's only one more thing that I want to say here today, and it's essentially this. It was a little phrase that I kind of passed over. But did you notice, I think it's in verse 15, when God says through Moses, when you want a king, the king that you have to choose is the man that I choose. Well, my friends, I hope you know where I'm going with this. There is a man that God has chosen to be king. And that man is Jesus Christ, our Lord. And as we leave here this place, hopefully with a new sense of this dominion that we have, May we live as a true king in Israel under the lordship of the man that God has chosen, Jesus Christ. And may we live for his glory. And may we make his fame known. And may we make his message known far and wide. And doing that, may we be a blessing to ourselves, to our families, and to our nation. Let us pray. Our Father, we do thank you for your word and all that is in it. And we do ask, Lord God, that in these little domains that you have given to us, these these little kingdoms, May we approach these things in the very way that you've called kings and queens to, to, to act. And so grant us that, Father. Again, as we have said, that we might make your glory known, make your son known, make the gospel known, and be that threefold blessing that we've spoken of. So grant each of these things, we pray, Father, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.